Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigaloff, where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigaloff was either off-duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigaloff was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigaloff. Hey, well, thanks for joining me again. I want to give a special shout-out and thank you to all my Patreon subscribers. We've got Shell Pace at the $50 level, Sam and Angela Shelke at the Self-Made 2020 level. We have the Plandemic Reprimando that's $17.76 a month, and we have Ty Reed, we have Charles Allen, we have Tinfoil, and that's obviously a screen name, Stanley Williams, Dr. Anna Mihaika, Frank DePola. We have a Self-Made $10 level with Kevin Alanos. We have the Refined Not Burned at $5 with Linda, Amy, Joe, Pat and Bev, PJ, Rebecca, Marcus, Elizabeth, Dawn, and in the Courage is Contagious, that's $1 a month with Amanda, Jay, Spetsnasty, and Darrell. Thank you so much for for helping support me. It truly means the world. It means more than the dollars than, than you can ever imagine. The guest that I have today, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Robert Chandler. Now, Dr. Chandler is a retired orthopedic surgeon, so he has had some more time than the rest of us to sit around and look deep into this this information that we're about to go over here. Now, he's been working with Daily Clout. He's been with Team 5 and now working with Team 3 on decoding all this information and figure out what, what are the safety signals that we're seeing. Now, sir, thank you so much for com- coming on. Please call me Sam throughout this because it's just easier. Will do. So where do you want to start first? Well, I think probably where we usually start trying to understand disease processes, which is the pathology and the histopathology. Just just as little pathology is, is understanding how disease impacts cells and tissues, and histopathology is looking at the cellular level. And recently, Dr. Burkhart, who is a pathologist, retired pathologist in Germany, began receiving, this was 2021, I believe, um, consultation cases, forensic consultation cases brought to him by family members who had lost loved ones and had had autopsies performed on the deceased loved ones but were not satisfied with the results of the autopsy. There was something unusual about the cases that uh, drove them to, to one autopsy. But then when the autopsy was completed, most of the time they didn't have a cause of death. Sometimes they said natural causes, to which Dr. Burkhart said, I, I don't know what a natural cause is. We need to dig deeper, which is what he did. He put together a group of pathologists, beginning with a faculty member at the University of Hanover in northern Germany. Now he has a group of 10 pathologists, physicists, biologists, and they're trying to get to the bottom of what these strange new diseases are. He first presented the results of 30 autopsies plus three biopsies, December of 2021. He repeated it in February of 22. And I took that information, cleaned up the voice transcribed script, and feathered in the 60-some-odd photomicrographs. And basically what he's done is outline the pathologic basis of vaccine disease. And he's just recently at a meeting in Stockholm, updated the series with now 100 autopsies and 20 biopsies. 
which is probably the world's biggest study of underlying pathology to the harms caused by these vaccines. And the second lecture or the second lecture series, I've now prepared in a text form, which should be available today or tomorrow on Daily Cloud. So you'll have a 100-page document with about 150 photomicrographs of histopathology from people that were being investigated as having died from vaccine-related etiology or cause, which he determined to be present in about 80% of the cases he's looked at. And I think that's a good place to, to begin trying to understand what these products are actually doing in the human body. Now, sir, when you say vaccines, you're referring to specifically only the, the COVID shots, right? Yeah, I should have clarified that. The, the term vaccine we try to avoid, it's really gene therapy. And what doc, Dr. Burkhart found was all four manufacturers producing similar kinds of complications, whether it's a vectored or it's a mRNA product. And I want to draw so everyone's all, attention... To what you just mentioned is how you're using the nomenclature that everyone knows, so we know, so it's a familiar language, right? So we say vaccine, but in the professional sense, he doesn't use the word vaccine, neither do I, because it's not a vaccine. It is a gene therapy, and I actually got a, I was allegedly ordered, and there was a command 15-6 investigation against me to see if I disobeyed a direct order to not call it a gene therapy. Well... <laughs> You can't tell me what to say and what not to say. It's a First Amendment right, and gene therapy is the best explanation for what this type of shot is. But I, I just want to draw attention to that because I think that's an important point that when, to help you discern, help the listener and the viewer discern, that when there's someone who's talking and they're not willing to call it a gene therapy or they're not willing to use other nomenclature that I've discussed, then maybe there could be two things. They could be they're still living in this kind of cloud or they have other influencing factors. Well, I, I think this whole thing about this focus on definitions and words, it's, it can be distracting. Clearly, these products have a different mechanism of action. What you call it, nomenclature, we, we can argue about that, but I, I don't think we can argue about the substance of the issue, that you have a genetic code that's injected into your body, it commandeers your body's cellular machinery to produce a foreign protein. So that is gene therapy. It's not a traditional vaccine. Traditional vaccines generally came in two forms. One was a killed virus, and the second was attenuated virus. And that constitutes all pr prior to these products, the nature of vaccination. And that definition that you just gave of gene therapy, that was actually defined by the FDA in 2018. So it's not something new that we've changed. It's something that they've changed the definition of vaccine, not the definition of gene therapy, which is important. And thank you for, for discussing that point. Yeah, and it has implications, too, because the approval process varies according to whether you're dealing with a gene product or a traditional vaccine with the gene products being much more detailed and, and exhaustive. 
And there's a lot we can't deal with in terms of motivations and why people did things, but it certainly bypassed some of the safety mechanisms involved with product development. Sorry for, sorry for that distraction. I just think they're really good points that, that you're okay. bringing up. <laughs> I don't know if it was you or me. <laughs> it's a new platform. But what were some of the things they were seeing in the autopsies that you've dove headfirst into? Yeah, it's it's a very intense experience. And let me just give your your listeners and, and viewers a a little assistance. The, the papers that I've put out are available on my Substack, and it's free. It's not meant to be. Using. This is pure information. So my Substack is just robertchandler.substack.com, and you'll find the first edition of the Burkhart series on that substack. It's also part of the Daily Clout Library, dailyclout.io, and under the Pfizer documents analysis. And you'll see, I think we're up to 57 reports, and this is number 56. And what I, what I encourage the reader, listener, viewer, to, to how to approach this as a visual experience. It's not like reading a chapter in a book or an article in a magazine or newspaper or even something you might see online. No, this is visual. And in that first paper, there's some 60 photomicrographs. Have a look, get, get a sense of the gestalt. I've embedded a tool called Histology Guide com where you can pull up images of normal tissues if you want to compare and go through the slides and you'll see that Dr. Burkhart and his group in Germany have done a very nice job of buying specific forms of pathology associated with these genetic therapies. Now, let me just outline some of them. The, one of the fundamental things that happens when this material is injected in your body is you start making foreign proteins. And those proteins, sometimes called spike, uh, and it seems like there's a group of them, it's not just one, have a propensity to affix uh, to the cell lining of blood vessels. And this is critical because blood vessels go through your whole body. So you, you can have involvement of many different organs. In some of the cases Dr. Burkhart and his group looked at, had up to five organ systems involved. And it's the vascular system that gives access and entry of the spike protein that's produced by the mRNA that's injected along with the, the nanoparticles in, in this gene therapy. And then the body starts to attack those spike proteins. And if they're affixed to the wall of a vessel or if they're in an organ, you start seeing cellular accumulations that aren't normally present tissues, lymphocytes, in some cases eosinophils, and associated with that process of infiltrating these foreign proteins, you have damage to normal structures. And the process is generalized, but the organ damage can be specific. So you can have conditions related to the heart, to the brain, and pick the organs. I went through this slide deck and I found 12 different organs that were involved. 
So the manifestations are quite, and could be anything from autoimmune, which is the body attacking itself, to disorders of blood, both excessive clotting, coagulopathy, or excessive bleeding. And there's also deposition disease, sometimes called amyloidosis. Foreign proteins sometimes cannot be broken down by the body and start accumulating in, in tissues. There's some idea that Alzheimer's disease, for instance, is caused by deposition of foreign proteins. And Dr. Bur Burkhardt has clearly identified amyloid-like protein aggregating in the tissues. One of the final mechanisms that's particularly disturbing is aplasia. Neoplasia is the formation of new tissue. It can be benign. It can be malignant. And some of the malignancies are, are very disturbing. They can be multicentric primaries, meaning you don't just see cancer in one cell type, but you may have multiple, including blood cells, like in lymphoma. And that is not perfectly delineated right now, but there is data accruing that suggests that these therapies are associated with particularly aggressive form of neoplasia, malignant neoplasia. Yeah, that, that's interesting because a couple of the things that you've recently mentioned, so the clots and the cancers, and I, I really want to draw attention to usually when you when a person, let's say before 2019, we'll go back to 2018 just to have a wide, wide margins, if you will. Yeah. But if we go back to 2018 and we look at cancer, when someone was developed cancer, let's say you found a metastasis far away, you could reasonably assume that that was the only type of cancer, that you didn't have multiple different primaries. And this idea of having multiple different primaries is very unusual. Typically, you get one type of cancer, not multiple types of cancer in the same organ or in various parts of the body. And a metastasis was usually, not always, you couldn't hang your hat on it, but you could usually say, yeah, that's probably from the primary that's over here, but we have to get a piece of the primary, a piece of the metastasis, and make sure they're the same. But now we're getting mets and primaries, and they're they're different because it's from a different primary, which is mind-blowing. Yeah, how, how do you treat multiple simultaneous cancers that are aggressive? And I, I, I think it's something we need to start thinking about in a fundamental way. And, and I think that's the significance also of Dr. Burkhardt's work is autopsy, pathology, molecular analysis can help establish causation which is important in, in many other respects, but it also starts pointing the way to treatment. And one of the encouraging things that's happening, even in this climate of censorship, and my God, my God, you've gone through incredible experience, try, trying to speak your mind and science and medicine are about debate and resolution. Sometimes it takes years to, to get to a conclusion. But we can't afford to put this off. These medical maladies associated with this treatment, we just need to jump on this and use the pathologic basis of the disease to start designing treatment. So let me give you an example of that. For instance, there are some medications and some drugs that come from other uses that look like they can disable the spike protein, which be terrific because some people don't seem to be able to shut down this manufacturing of spike, at least for 
six months. Dr. Burkhart now has a case that showed up at eight months. And shutting down Spike by basically recycling it with one of these products can help relieve that set of illnesses that, that flow from this mRNA LMP set of products. Yeah, and I want to talk about the clots and then go back to the RNA. But the, the clots that we've been seeing with these, have y'all, have y'all had any slides of, of clots to look at them under the microscope? Yes, and not the first Burkhart series, but the, the second one that should be up on Daily Cloud today or tomorrow. Amy is working hard. There's 106 images. Uh, the file is 479 megabytes, so it's richly illustrated. She has to uh, hand process each one of those images to get it up, but we want the public to be able to jump into this material and understand what we're facing as a society and, and as a species. There's over 5 billion people that have this product in their body. I think this is something we've got to get past the censorship and, and all of this kind of stuff and start working together on some solutions. Yeah, because one thing I'd be very interested in is seeing the these fibrous clots under a microscope and compare those to the, the current jelly clots or the fat clots that we have seen in the past. And that kind of ties into an episode that I did a couple episodes back with Tom Havlin and how he, he reached out to some embalmers to find it just to do a survey to see if they've been seeing these new fibrous clots. Well, in, in the second out of Burkhart, there, there is some, some work that he's done on that, and, and it's quite informative. This does not appear to be the standard fibrin clot that we're accustomed to. It, it may be chemically different and, and mechanically different, so it may require different treatments. First, we have to recognize it. We have to diagnose it before it gets too prolonged. But it appears that this material, which could be amyloid, and in Dr. Burkhart's second set of slides, and, and the 106 I'm talking about are all, all new. So we've got a, a library now of 150 histopathology. It's an excellent basis to understand how this set of diseases functions. He, he starts examining some of that clot material, and it looks like there's this amyloid, these abnormal proteins that are part of that. I call it clots, but I'm not sure that nomenclature is going to stick. There, there's also debris. Call it debris. It's the holes that surround the messenger RNA, the lipid nanoparticles which have some chemicals that look like they aggregate in vessels. So it's not just the mRNA, but the lipid nanoparticles look like they have an influence in disease states and could possibly have a role in altering the clotting mechanism and, and the nature of the clot. There's electron microscopy of lipid nanoparticle-induced abnormal clots, and it just looks different structurally. It, to, to me, as an orthopedic surgeon, I, I would want to know if there's collagen in that material or collagen-like substance that would be resistant to traditional vascular degradation processes that clear clots from your blood system. And it may be that these aggregations are going to require a different form of treatment. And, and not... 
Well, I, I just wanted to finish and say traditional form of treatments would be things like using heparin, which, yeah, TPA, streptokinase, things of that sort. In in your experience being a orthopedic surgeon, right, because to give people a little idea is you usually have to put a tourniquet on someone's extremity before you do a total joint, and that way all the blood's cut off. One thing that, that you never want to see is a, a deep vein thrombosis, which would be a clot in a vein. But in all your years of practice prior to 2018, again, we're getting those wide margins, had you ever seen a clot in a artery? Rarely. Most of that work would be done by vascular surgeons. And, and clots coming from a venous side are, are more problematic for orthopedic surgeons as a complication for hip replacement, as you pointed out. Not so much with a tourniquet. And maybe what people don't understand is that we routinely use tourniquets in orthopedic surgery. That gives us a bloodless field so that we can go in and rearrange structures and try to repair things without having to deal with bleeding that's associated. So we commonly will inflate a tourniquet to 200, 250 millimeters of mercury for up to two hours. And that's probably a concept that's a little foreign to people, operating in a bloodless field because of a tourniquet. You know, it just doesn't seem right, but we do it all the time. And then one other thing that I wanted to mention is the RNA. You had mentioned that Y'all have measured them at, I think as you said, six and eight months. Have you read anything about the modified mRNA, where they're not using native type of RNA, but they're, they're, they're modifying the nucleic acid so that it doesn't get broken down by your body? Yes, you know, we, we were told that this, and it's actually in the Pfizer document, confidential document 2.4, where they say this mRNA is broken down in 12 to 24 hours, in normal degradative processes which is really strange because in the same document, 2.4, they have documentation and it goes on for the duration of the animal study, which was 48 hours. And it was still circulating. In fact, it was in many organ systems was still accumulating on an ascending pattern. It was still rising. So clearly it, it exceeded what the designers told the public that this stuff would be in your body and gone and then you just have the benefit from the antibodies produced in the cellular immunity it turns out in reality they've hardened this molecule they've hardened it to degradation it's got a stealth aspect so it can come into your body undetected uh, and in order to do that, they created an artificial nucleoside. Now, I think your audience may know that uh, mRNA is, is built of a series of four molecules that are linked together on a phosphorus backbone, kind of like a string of pearls. But one of those four molecules, the nucleosides or nucleotides, if it's built into the chain, one of those nucleotides is synthetic. It's never been in a human body, and it's a 1-N-methyl pseudouridine. And what the implications of that are, I, I'm still scratching my head over what happens if you take a computer code, for instance, which is what mRNA and DNA really consist of. It's a code that programs your cells, and you introduce an artificial string of code that you don't know exactly what it does, 
other than it's meant to prolong the existence of the MRI, which it does quite well. And studies that go out as far as 60 days find that this RNA is still working in cells producing spike protein. So this modification just needed more analysis to, to understand what we call the pharmacokinetics, what happens to it, toxicity, uh, additional studies. And and that's one thing that if I'm sure many of the listeners and viewers have have noticed this that Dr. Malone yes he he claims to have he he says that he's the one the inventor and has a lot of patents for mRNA but that was for messenger RNA mRNA not this kind of pseudo mRNA which is actually mod RNA when you look at the Pfizer documents it says mRNA has a little asterisk next to it you look at the bottom of the page and it says modified and they modify the nucleate nucleic acid and modified it to, to last, to be durable. So on the one hand, they're telling us, well, it's going to be de degraded naturally, but they've engineered the product not to be degraded. Figure that one out. And have you been able to find, or have you looked at the lipid nanoparticle as a toxic, toxic to human bodies type of substance? Yes, the, there's... A big question is to what's actually in these bottles, and there's been no detailed analysis. We we can look in, in let's say the document 2.4, for instance, in the Pfizer confidential documents. They list the contents. In addition to the mRNA, there's a number of other elements. One is polyethylene glycol, which has an allergic profile can cause particularly severe form of allergy called anaphylaxis. But there's another product that's cryptically referred to as ALC-0315. And I tried to find out about that, and I just couldn't get very far in terms of its biocompatibility aspects. And What's interesting about ALC-0315, and there's another alc 0 I can't remember the name at the moment, 159. And and there's a third lipid nanoparticle that's also in Pfizer. And that was the basis for the medical exemption that I was writing for service members that wanted to be exempt from getting this shot. Because if you look up the safety data sheets on those three products, the ALC ones, those say they're not validated for medical use. And that all safety ends up is the responsibility of the end user. And here we are injecting it into people. And then the DSPC or DSPE, whichever one it was, that one says it's not validated for veterinary use. But here we are injecting it into people. Yeah. With classified seems, seems toxicology kind of reckless. reports. Very reckless. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, you know, Sam, my background as a surgeon, vaccines were of little interest. And in fact, I, I took everyone I could get. I had three friends that died from getting hepatitis in the operating room. Yeah. So, gee, I was anything but an anti-vaxxer. And it wasn't until I had Moderna 2 and developed a fever of 104 degrees, I said, wait a minute, this, this isn't, there's something wrong here, which was one of the motivations for me to dig into this and, and being retired and having a background in molecular genetics, a little bit strange for an orthopedic surgeon, but I studied biology at Stanford and had two Nobel laureates as professors, molecular genetics, Nobel Prize winners. Certainly, the field has evolved massively since that time, but I'm not intimidated by this stuff, and I'll dive in and look at it. So that's kind of how I got into this. And when this set of documents was released, 
and, and thanks to Aaron Siri at ICANN for getting these documents out and started looking at it. I said, wow, I, can't, I actually can't believe this has happened. You know, I, I came through medicine at a time when the CDC and the FDA were on a pedestal. Journals like Lancet, New England Journal, it, it was gospel. And it was the guiding light in, in medicine. And once I started looking into it, I see it's more than just a vaccine issue. It's what's happened to medicine and science. Well, I think one thing is, if if you weren't able, if you didn't have the time, which most of us doctors weren't, especially as a surgeon, you're spending your time doing work with your hands, not not reading the stuff that you need, the, the medicine that's not that important to you. And as a family med doc, I was swamped seeing patients. And so never have time to look into any of this stuff. And then now that we have all this time on our hands and there's this huge, just glaring hypocrisy and just evilness, I don't really have a better word to describe it, of what's going on in these organizations, then you're like, well, let me look back and let me read more about everything that I thought I ever knew, like statins and, I mean, just everything. That's right. Yes, and I think we need to do that. And I've suggested at Daily Clout, now that they have these teams that are functioning. You know, I was in academic medicine for a while and actually have more resources at Daily Clout than I had at a major university. If I want some statistics done, I can fire that off. Right now, one of my colleagues is reviewing the histology because of what I've tried to do with the Burkhart II, if you will, is to guide the eye a little bit by circling and putting arrows so people are, are drawn to the pathology that's meant to be illustrated. And Dr. Flowers is part of my group, part of my team here. He's going through to make sure that, that we're showing things clearly and accurately, which, which is pretty incredible. And it gets done fast. We, we can crank these things out, have each other review them, critique them, modify them, in a relatively short period of time, and yes, the practicing physician can't do this. I'll spend 50, 75, 100 hours on one article. The Shema Bakura paper that came out originally in April of 21 on pregnancy, I looked at it. I've done peer review for 30 years, so I, I so I'll do a peer review on this. When I started getting into it, I said, this does, it's not just peer, it, well, it's not yeah, it's not just peer review. I did a second follow-up article, which I call forensic analysis, which is almost impossible to read because of the machinations and obfuscation. And it's up on my substack. Again, it's very difficult to read. I doubt if people get through it. it but for a practicing physician to dissect that paper, good luck. Yeah, I'm I'm not the smartest man in the room, but I had to go over that about four or five times and call up an OBGYN and sit there on the phone and talk with her and okay, explain this to me one more time how you did this. So so they actually just gave the wrong denominator to make it look like it's like a ten percent pregnancy loss when really it's an eighty two and a or eighty one and a half percent pregnancy loss rate. It's well Sam, let me tell you what I, and again, I spent a lot of time on this. In the first article, which was meant to be a peer review, uh, I go into that calculation in great detail. And my conclusion is there's no numbers you can generate from this report. So that with all the resources, the federal government, $14 billion budget, they had no useful data in 2021 regarding pregnant women, which is 
astounding given there was no preclinical testing in pregnancy. And I, I just, I almost couldn't believe it. And I go through all of those machinations and steps with that publication. And, and I think we put the two documents together, it's well over 100 pages, with fairly exhaustive look at how they presented that to the medical, medical public. Because busy doctors, you know this, you, you trust the journal, you trust the abstract to fairly reflect what's in the materials, methods, and conclusions. You expect the conclusions to be supported by the actual data you expect the data to be transparent and accurately reported. And this process is not working right, and we've got to fix it. That brings me to the next thing I want to talk about, because you talked about this on, on Daniel Horowitz, and I want to hear more about this, but you looked into how this affects men and women. Oh, phenomenal. You know, when document 5.3.6, and sorry, folks, these, these are cryptic. When you go on Aaron Siri's website and you see how these documents were presented to us, you'll understand some of the obstacles that the teams that have gone through this have had to overcome. They're just cryptically displayed, and there's tons of them. I personally, I personally have printed out 25,000 pages, which is driving my wife nuts because uh, this paper is all over the house. I had to buy a second printer, so I used three computers, an iPad, and two printers to, to output all this stuff because you have to because it might disappear. You look at it once and it's gone when you go back to look at it, so you better screenshot it and hard copy it. But the the level of detail behind this analysis is, is impressive, and, and some of the teams working on this are, are just doing a phenomenal job. Can we get into some of the findings that, that you've seen so far with, let's say, men and testes? No, no, that, that's, that's okay. Well, because there's so much to say about that 5.3.6, like the, was it eight or nine pages of no space, single, you know, like maybe nine font of unusual, it's, it's disastrous. Well, I, unfortunately, I think that's intentional. So I took the time and I prepared, in fact, the most popular piece of my is I went through that document 5.3.6 in a way that you don't have time to do. And a 24-page spreadsheet to make it transparent, and it's all numbers, and it's outlined on, on my substack. I think it may be in the Daily Clout archive too, where I try to make the actual data transparent so that you don't have to read through that horrible document. And there's some really strange things in that document. Like, there's a footnote. It's not footnote number seven. It's way in the back in tiny font, a very short sentence. It's something like, a seven-year-old was injected and had a stroke. Well, we need to know more about that seven-year-old. It wasn't released for children. What dose did this child get? And there was another cryptic note in that document that indicated a 28-day-old baby was injected. You think, what is going on here? Why didn't they stop it and say, what, what, we can't have this? And what's the outcome of those children? So one of the things we noted going through that document was the women just seemed to account for way too much of these adverse events. So we did a 
statistical analysis, we found that almost every category of disease had a female dominant, two to one, three to one. And the numbers vary depending on which data set you look at, but it, it's, it holds. It holds across document 5.3.6. It holds against the document that came out of the TGA in Australia that was about a million, 1.3 or 1.4 million. Huge data set. Again, the females are two-thirds of, of the adverse events. And we started breaking that category down. What kind of events are they having? Well, 16% involve the reproductive organs. And now we can go back to document 2.4, which tracks where this lipid nanoparticle encapsulated mRNA goes in the body. And by gosh, the ovaries are in the top four. So this stuff concentrates in the ovaries, maybe accounts for this sex difference in adverse events. And then we started looking at birth data, and this is a separate report, and we found that there's a major decline in births in Europe, in North America, and in, in oh, we looked at Taiwan, we looked at a number of different countries. It looks real. In Dr. Burkhart's second series, he has no ovarian or uterine, but he shows that in the testes, spike affixes to the maturing sperm cells and decimates the population. And I put in the document that's set to be released later today or tomorrow, normal, so you can compare. You can see how the sperm cells are just depleted in the testis. So even though the concentration in testes is nowhere near what it is in ovaries, it has a profound effect on the germination or the maturation of sperm cells. And we know from a study done in Israel that sperm counts and the viability of the sperm are harmed for at least six months. Is that as long as the spike protein is present? And do you, is there any way to determine like one spike protein damages, you know, 50 sperm or does it have to bind to it? Does it just being in proximity? Is it, I don't even know what question to ask. Yes. Uh, well, I think there's, well, no, uh, I got your question. <laughs> Maybe because my thought is the same. The words didn't work, but the idea does. And, and I think it's a direct toxicity. There was a paper out of San Diego, I think it was Scripps, that showed that there was a direct toxicity aspect to Spike. But it also, it's like you guys in the Army. You'll go light up a target, and then the artillery focuses in on it, or F-18 flies over and, and hones in on that the target signal. It looks like the spike protein lights up tissue that then is attacked by lymphocytes and other blood cells that are meant to target COVID, but the common feature is spike, and they'll attack spike wherever spike is. So it appears to be a direct cellular attack on these germinating cells from activated lymphocytes, which I don't know if you've talked about the Rolfkin study from Stanford, but they found mRNA in the axillary or the chest wall lymph nodes for 60 days, producing 
from the mRNA producing spike. And they had the opportunity to compare those germinal centers or lymph nodes after the genetic therapies, these gene therapies, compared it to actual COVID had quite a different effect. In COVID, these germinal centers are depleted. And with these gene products, these germinal centers are activated. And I don't know if you accept the term angry white cells, but it sounds like a political group. But, you know, they, t they take in basophilic staining. And, and gosh, to me, it looks like they're pre-malignant. But talk about killer bees. And I think these things, and, and you have to put this together. You have to take the Stanford study and say, well, are these where these cells are germinated? And then they accumulate, as Dr. Burkhart shows, in these various tissues. Is it a pitch and catch type of thing? And so we may have a whole different kind of lymphocyte, a hunter-killer lymphocyte, that's targeted to your normal organs, which is something we better look at pretty quickly. You had said that Dr. Burkhart gave specific recommendations for women, women wanting to reproduce in the future. What, what were those? Oh. I don't know if you're ready for this. I'm thinking 5.3 billion people have been injected. Now think about this. He said, women, if you're planning to have a family, find a male who's not been vaccinated. So where are you going to find that? It's profound. And, you know, I think it just... Yeah, watching Professor Burkhart deliver this, you know, he's 78, was born in Germany in 1944. Can you imagine what his childhood was like? And he was, he was retired. He's doing this out of retirement. And I, I would say he's working probably as hard as he ever has. So it's not a cavalier commoner. No, no, and that's... It's it's a hard thing to hear, but I think it's the things we need to hear. And hopefully, you saying that helps prevent a parent from giving that to their little boy. Well, let's be a little more clinical and therapeutic. You know, we don't, pathologists don't treat humans. You do. I used to, right? Thank God. It, it, Professor Burkhart put a cartoon at the end of his talk. There's a doctor talking to a patient saying, well, sir, looking at the, your, your disease here, I'm going to refer you to a pathologist. Well, it's meant to be humorous. But the, the point, I think, is I don't think we need to be overly negative. I think there's room for an optimistic view that not everybody has problems with these drugs. Some physiology may be able to defeat it. And I think we can develop treatment for, for many of these things. We just, we just need to get past the censorship and all of the nonsense that's going on in the medical field, in the field of science. Look, folks, we got, we got to work together on this. I don't care whether you voted for Biden or whoever. Just put down the swords and the axes and quit the battle. Let's work together and solve this problem. And whoever's doing the censoring out there, 
please stop. Just please stop. And that's from my heart. I have I have to take a break from looking at this stuff. I, I've got, this was a four-part series for me, so part two is coming out. Part three, I've gone and gathered a bunch of case reports to say, oh, the criticism is going to be, oh, Dr. Burkhart, you know, he's blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, I've got independent publications from many countries around the world showing similar findings. So let's get past whether this is real or not, please. But the, the next step is how can we get to treatments, diagnosis and treatments? And I think there's real progress being made there. It, it's not entirely public. And, and you realize, Sam, that it's hard to bring this up in a public forum because whatever's happened to our ability to reason critically and negotiate the differences we have in, in medical ideas. Let me just give an example in orthopedics. In the decade of the 80s, we came into a whole new set of techniques for fixing a broken leg. Seems mundane, but we had plates and we had nails and we had casts and braces and we'd go to meetings and the brace guys would come in and fight and argue. And it was done in a collegial way. Yeah, you take your best shot, and at the end of it, you shake hands, and, and you go back to your institution, you gather data. Let me just give you the, the, the quick and dirty on this. We ended up, at the end of it all, saying, by golly, we got all these methods that work. We just have a full toolbox. What you have to do is learn when to use which one and how to do it properly. And by golly, we can offer people all kinds of different treatments, not because one won the contest, because we decided we knew how to use each one specifically. Right. I think you're absolutely right in everything you're saying. I think the first thing we need to do is get the people to quit taking these things and putting them in their bodies until we can get the government to collect them up and take them out of circulation. And then the next thing yeah, stop them immediately. Stop these shots immediately. And then the next thing is, because I know this sounds like a lot of doom and gloom, but, you know, miraculously, the God, the God of the Bible has made the human body in such a way that it can overcome things that you would never imagine it could. Whether it be figuring out how to overcome these things, or it just, the the mechanisms inside the body can, can wall bad things off and keep bad things from happening in the future. But either way, we need to have more heads come together have more freedom to speak and we can we can build bridges to fix these issues that's right i i, I think we we can beat this but we got we got to change how we're working just just to give an example and i'm not a virologist or immunologist but my mentor at northwestern medical school was phil patterson spent his life studying a condition of brain disease encephalitis it, he created laboratory animals by removing brain tissue, modifying it, injecting it back, and these animals will reject their own brains. It's called experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis. Well, he did that to study the process. So we were attuned to autoimmunity at Northwestern, and on the ward, we identified a young lady that came in with something that looked like Epstein-Barr mononucleosis. It turns out that she didn't have some of the classic clinical features, so we worked her up. The reason for admission was hemolytic anemia, Sam, and cold-activated hemolytic anemia, which in Chicago in the wintertime, it's, it's going to become obvious. So she 
23-year-old girl started destroying her own red cells. And what we found out was she had cytomegalovirus mononucleosis, not Epstein-Barr mononucleosis. And this virus had gotten in and modified the type of red cell proteins that were on the red cell wall and had changed the genetic instruction in the maturation of the red cell to produce a fetal antigen on the outside of the red cell, and she's 23 years old. She's got these fetal red cells in circulation that are attacked by her own body, which is where her red cells were going. Well, it turns out the follow-up on that, she, she was treated. I think they treated her with steroids, and the follow-up was that it resolved. Ultimately, her body was able to overcome that reprogramming error caused by cytomegalovirus. That's, that's wild. One thing I wanted to ask you, we haven't talked about that yet, was the brain. Because I remember early on thinking to myself, you know, because the way we got the this the code of what the virus is, China put it up in some database and we were able to download it. We never actually had the virus. And, you know, there's some people that say we still don't actually have the virus, but that's a different conversation for a different day. But my first initial thought was, what if someone hid inside of that code the prion disease or Kretzfeld Jakob or mad cow in humans. And then I remember not too much later, I read an article by Bart Clayson where he says that the, the spike protein can induce, or at least theoretically can induce Kretzfeld Jakob, which is mad cow in humans. Have you seen any of those kind of those brain changes? Yeah, and as I said, this is a four part series for me. The first part is Burkhart one. Number two is Burkhart Two, which drops today or tomorrow. Number three is this accumulated series from the literature. And I'm going to include those Jakob's uh, Kreutzfizid and the discussion of amyloid in general, because it has a role to play, as we've talked about, in the heart and in the blood vessels, maybe part of this clot, as well as demyelinating disease, which is probably autoimmune deposition disease, which would be more like the Alzheimer's, where, where signals are just not processed. So, yeah, that's definitely part part of the constellation of, of illnesses that these products seem to be responsible for. Well, sir, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I, I truly appreciate you coming on because we're, we're hitting right at the hour mark now, and that's all I, I got you for is that hour. So I want to be respectful of that. But thank you Thank you so much for coming on and sharing this information. And I want to leave everybody with a bit of hope that as long as we can speak the truth and we put out into the sunlight for all ideas to be exposed to sunlight, which is the best disinfectant, all the conspiracy ideas will go away. All the truth will rise to the top and we'll be able to figure out ways to overcome this. Agree. Totally. Uh, where can people find your work, sir? My substack is Robert Chandler, one one word, no spaces, dot substack dot com. And the other is Daily Clout, one word, D A I L Y dot clout dot O. And finally, our first fifty documents are present on Amazon in the form of ebook. It will be out in a hard copy soon. I'll have to tell you, we're we're well into volume two. And I would guess that the rate that we're preparing documents, so we'll have volume two done in the next six to eight months. 
I want to encourage the listener to get that book when it comes out on hard copy, because just like Dr. Chandler was mentioning earlier, these things disappear from digital sources. If it's if it's not on your shelf, it's not actually yours. I, plus, plus the people that say there's no evidence, if you bring a 1,500-page document and drop it on their desk and say, look at this, get back to me, look it over tonight, read, read through it. And we can go through it in detail tomorrow and it should end that no evidence crap. Exactly. Well, sir, I know it can be absolutely devastating, heartbreaking to be reading through these things, but I'm glad that you have stepped up to that challenge. Yeah, and Sam, you know, I as a trauma surgeon, we used to, we used to train you guys in the Army, and, and we had a Navy pilot that was an orthopedic surgeon working with us at County USC, and We've seen some pretty grim things, and and you do certainly on the battlefield, but looking at these cases where you have a teenage uh, child that doesn't make it to breakfast, the parents go and find a dead child, I I just had, I had to leave, I had to walk, came back and went to bed, I just... Well, I think, I think you said exactly what it is, it's, we're, we're in a battle, not a battle, we're in a war. This is a bio biowarfare situation that we've been in since 27 March 2020 and now we're starting to see the casualties of that biowarfare and it's it's children and it's you know football players and soccer players and and it's grandma and it's grandpa and it's you know moms and dads and it's devastating and that's why these shots need to be stopped they need to be rounded up and we need to figure out what's in all of them because there's lot to lot variants and there's variants in each lot and they need to be you need to store some for for record keeping but the rest need to be incinerated and destroyed yes i, I agree totally we this platform as i said i was into molecular genetics 50 years ago with a couple nobel laureate professors and i thought whoa this is just wonderful stuff but it's just not going wrong right now and we got to step back and, and realize that uh, reading some of these studies, like the Stanford studies, you realize these people are brilliant. But this is a very complex area of medicine. And we've learned enough to know how much we don't know yet. And one thing that I just want to throw a caution out there for everyone is soon someday you may see all the mRNA go away. And there'll only be normal, quote, normal vaccines left. And if they still have lipid nanoparticles in them, do not take them. I truly believe that the lipid nanoparticle is the bioweapon. Yeah, I, I haven't reached the conclusion because there's so many moving parts here, looking at some of the basic science and then trying to put together the medicine. You may be right. I know others have honed in on that too. And I'm, I'm just saying, look, I'm, we gotta keep everything on the table because we don't know what's in there. We don't know about the quality control. There's been a lot of conversation about what these products actually do once they're in your, the body. And if you look at the gaps in the research and go back to the early part of this effort, you say that they just needed more time. They just needed to, to work on this. And someday it could be a tremendous asset to, to healthcare, but we're not there yet. And we've got to stop it and figure out what's happened and try to help the, the wounded get better. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time today. 
Thank you. Just a reminder for everyone out there, duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear. Are you concerned about having food for your family around the house? If so, check out Harvest Right Freeze Dryers. See if they're right for you. I've had mine since 2016. I absolutely love it. It's great. I can freeze dry food. The children love freeze dried fruit. It gets so much sweeter than just regular fruit just by removing the water from it. And it can last for up to 25 years if stored properly. Take a look at the link below and see if one of these is right for you.